For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what it means to be last in line for water from the Colorado River. I'll talk with very famous person Mandy Patinkin, who's performing in Tucson next week. And a closer look at some short films that are being offered at the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center that depict different aspects of the Asian American experience. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. For those living in other parts of the country, water may not be something they think about every day. But those of us who live in Arizona have to. We rely on a mixture of groundwater and the Colorado River for the water we need. And a continuing drought, climate change, and population growth is straining the system. For those of us who get water from the Central Arizona Project, pressure on the Colorado River is of particular concern. The CAP provides 456 billion gallons of Colorado River water to Tucson and Phoenix each year. And since we're at the lower end of the river, changes to water use in places like Colorado can have a big impact. And when the rights to a large volume of river water is up for negotiation, it draws in some powerful players and big money. KUNC's Alex Hager reports on one deal that is currently coming together. Amy Moyer is standing under a busy highway, pinched in a dramatic snow-covered canyon. On one side, the rushing Colorado River churns with whitewater. On the other, a chain-link fence blocks off a building that looks like a warehouse, with electrical wires and big metal pipes coming out of it. It is a nondescript brown building off of I-70 that most people don't notice when they're driving. Moyer is with the Colorado River District. But if you are in the water world, It holds the key for one of the most interesting and important water rates on the Colorado River. This is the Shoshone Hydroelectric Facility. And even though it uses a lot of water, it returns every drop back to the Colorado River. And that means it's not just a hydropower plant. It spins through the turbines and then goes back into the river to be used for habitat, to be used for recreation, to support cool, clean water for drinking water and uh, productive agriculture on the West Slope. Shoshone is a big reason why water keeps flowing to cities and farms along the river in Colorado. Moyers Group is a taxpayer-funded agency founded to protect Western Colorado water. It's spending big bucks to buy the rights to the water and lease it right back to the power company, XL Energy all to make sure that water keeps flowing, even if the power plant goes offline. It's so much more than we're going to spend $100 million to do nothing. We're keeping uh, the native flows in the river for so many benefits on the West Slope. Moyers Group isn't just keeping water here, they're keeping it away from the people on the other side of the mountains. Fast-growing cities and suburbs around Denver get their water supply piped over from the Colorado River. For decades, Western Colorado has been anxious that their east side neighbors will snatch up the plant's water for themselves. So even with a $98.5 million price tag, buying Shoshone is a huge sigh of relief for the Western Slope. And the biggest beneficiary? Anything that results in more water in the river is good for fish. Further downstream in Grand Junction, Dale Ryden with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service looks out over a murky, meandering stretch of the Colorado River, home to endangered fish. 
it's a competition between people, between agriculture, between recreation, and between the natural world to all try to survive and coexist. By buying the Shoshone water right, the River District is trying to take some of the heat out of that competition. And it's already working. Tina Bergenzini runs the Grand Valley Water Users Association. We can't have farming without taking care of those fish. It, they go hand in hand. The Endangered Species Act says people who use water from the river are legally required to leave enough behind for fish. If they don't, they have to turn off their own sprinklers. So if the water from Shoshone keeps flowing where fish need it most, farmers and ranchers don't have to worry. I think peace of mind is the number one most important thing. It's just peace of mind of knowing that we're going to be able to divert. It's not every day that a big money Western water deal brings together fish lovers and farmers, not to mention about 20 other local governments and nonprofits that pledge their support and money for the Shoshone purchase. Lauren Riss is the state's top water official. I don't expect that there's going to be um, entities or individuals that come out of the woodwork, you know, vocalizing any strong opposition to us moving forward in this way. Access to water is a hotly debated topic around the region, and any kind of deal that gives a lot of people some decades-long security about who gets to use it, that's going to get a big base of support. Again, the River District's Amy Moyer. I think now more than ever, there is a desire to look for long-term permanent solutions on the Colorado River, and this is one that exists for Colorado. In a time of deep uncertainty about the river, this big money deal lets at least some water users put to bed decades of worry. In Glenwood Springs, Colorado, I'm Alex Hager. That story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Truly a star of the stage and screens of all sizes, Tony and Emmy Award-winning Mandy Patinkin is coming to Tucson to perform an evening of song at the Fox Tucson Theater on February 18th. I was very happy to talk with Mandy about some aspects of his amazing career. And of course, I couldn't wait to talk about The Princess Bride, which is a movie based on one of my favorite books. I interviewed Kerry Elwes a while back, and he wrote a book, you know, where he talked about the intensive sword fight training that you both had to do. And he said that when he first met you and held a sword at you, you had already had more training than him and you bested him quickly. And I'd just like to know what you recall, what you choose to remember most about the sword fight training for The Princess Bride. Well, I don't remember that I bested him. Uh... <laughs> It was a long time ago, so I believe what Carrie's memory is better than mine. But um, I did have some sword uh, fencing um, experience from doing Shakespeare plays uh-huh. uh, at uh, in Central Park, jo- uh, Joseph Papp's pre-Shakespeare in Central Park. So I played Hotspur, you know, I played Hamlet. I certainly learned to fight for that. Uh, and then when we did the movie, I did most of my work with uh, Bob Anderson, who was an Olympic fencer for England, and we would fence all day because uh, Carrie and I usually were filming scenes that the other person wasn't in except for the sword fights and the uh, initial beginning stuff. So while he was filming, I'd be practicing fencing, and while I uh, w- was filming, he'd be practicing fencing. And the only time we could practice together was at our mutual lunch times. 
So we were young and hearty and didn't need any naps. And we'd finish filming and then, you know, shove the food down our throats, jump out into the set and, you know, start fencing and then go back to filming whatever scenes we were doing or back to rehearsing with our teacher. Pretty arduous, it sounds like. But was it fun? It was really thrilling and fun. The most thrilling being at the very end of filming all the sword fighting, which we waited till the end of the movie, so we had optimal time. Uh, the sequence, a uh, couple things happened, which you know, is well documented. The sequence going up the steps didn't work for the camera. So uh, in 20 minutes, we re-choreographed that whole sequence that we spent four months you know, tuning every little note. And, and we had learned the craft so well from our <laughs> teachers, we were able to literally re-choreograph it in 20 minutes. And then the greatest moment was Rob said he always wanted to see that the actors were actually doing it. And our favorite moment was he said, could you guys give me a couple takes if I take the cameras up to the ceiling and run through the whole fight? And we just were like two kids, you know, at the merry-go-round. We said, yeah, yeah. And then he said, you know, action. And then the only sad moment during the whole sword fighting experience was any time Rob would say, cut, print. Because if he said cut, print, that meant we probably wouldn't do that piece of the fight ever again. (laughs) As a huge fan of the book, you know, William Goldman has been gone for a long time. And he never wrote a sequel to The Princess Bride. I think this would have been a terrible idea, but I'm curious if anyone ever approached you about doing any kind of sequel. They were going to do a musical that Bill Goldman was working on with Adam, um, uh, Adam, Adam Gettle was writing a musical with uh, Bill Goldman, and then that fell apart. But early on, I, I know that the idea was, Adam had mentioned to me at some point, that they were going to ask me to play the grandfather of the little boy uh, in the musical. And then uh, when Inigo was birthed in the book, I would become Inigo Montoya. Certainly an older Inigo Montoya, but it would be his grandfather playing Inigo Montoya. I guess in my mind, as a reader, I pictured the further adventures of Inigo Montoya with his first mate Fezzik as the Dread Pirate Roberts. Why don't you go to work and, uh, and, and, and write that out and uh, send it to the uh, William Goldman, uh, you know, whatever it's called, and after someone passes away, get their approval and, and uh, give me a call, see if I'm still alive. <laughs> Anytime anybody brings up those moments, those days that, uh, you know, I pinch myself that, are you kidding me? I, I, I really got to be in that movie. Are you kidding me? How does that happen? You were the guy. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was the guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he looks like me, sounds like me. <laughs> there, there's a lot of clues there that I might be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, tell us about the show you're bringing to Tucson. What can audiences expect? Well, I promise you, you'll have a good time. I won't tell people what songs I'm doing. Now it's the age of Internet, clearly. You can go online and see what people have written about other concerts of the, you know, under this name being alive that I've done in other cities. We've been doing it for a while. But sometimes I change things. I add things. I take things away. I put things in. I change it sometimes in the middle of the show. And I I don't want somebody, which has happened to me in the past, they come back or they come to see me or they write me a note saying, 
you know, I drove all this way to see this because I thought you were going to sing X, Y, or Z, and you didn't <laughs> sing that, and I was so disappointed. So I don't like to say what I'm going to do, uh, except that it'll be very eclectic, uh, a wonderful array of great, great artist songs who had the true gift of genius to tell these extraordinary stories. I'm not the genius. I'm just the mailman, and I get to deliver the mail to every member of the audience and to myself at the same time, which is uh, such a comfort because um, it, it, it's it's the uh, it's the vitamins and the and the comfort for my soul. These thoughts and some of them are just how to be silly or how to have fun or a good time, and some of them are how to talk to your family or loved ones or kids or children. Some of them just are about being alive and how to how to not miss being alive, take advantage of every second of it. So when we went to put this together after the pandemic, you know, put us all to sleep for three years, I had a previous uh, song set that we were doing around 2016, and uh, friends would come and go, I saw it, it was good. It was a little dark, but it was good. I, I liked it, but we. I said to Adam Ben David, my piano player, I said, let's put that one in the drawer, Adam. I want this to be fun. I want it to welcome you and me back to to the boards and, and to welcome the audience to being together again and to coming out to, you know, get out of their house and stop looking at their phones and just get away from the insanity everywhere in the world and have a nice time. So let's just go through everything that we've ever had and new stuff, too. So we went through over 14 hours of material, and we put together this show, which I – I have a wonderful time doing, and I'll do it until I can't can't sing or speak or talk or walk. <laughs> well, let's not go that far. What can you tell us about your primary instrument, your voice? How has it changed over the years, and what have you gained? Well, I love this question. It's called gravity. Nobody gets away from it when you're lucky enough to get older. The changes happen, and I get down on my hands and knees and kiss the feet of my favorite singer-songwriter who ever lived, and that man's name is Tom Waits. Mm. And he has, he has a voice that sounds like he soaks it in God knows what every night, <laughs> and, uh, and yet he remains my favorite. So he has given the rest of us license to get out there no matter what. But the bottom line is the, the music happens to just be the transport system of the words which are the story all i do is tell stories that these wonderful people wrote and uh and they happen to be on musical notes i'll literally get out there and do a show if i have no voice at all and i've had shows like that because when you're doing a solo concert with only you and the piano player there's nobody that can come out and you know be you so you got to find a way to get through it and some of those evenings have been the best experiences of my life because you have to find a way to tell that story. Mandy, can you tell us a little something about the prayer songs that you sing to Becky before mealtime? Yes, I do my prayers. I have a lot of prayers I do every day and meditation series of all kinds of things I've put together from sayings from wise people that I knew and Hebrew prayers and Shakespeare and Sondheim and good friends and all kinds of things that I want to put in front of my eyeballs every day. And um, and I figured, wow, what better time to say some prayers 
especially for healing uh, individuals all over the world and the world itself, the planet, um, humanity all over the world. I have to feed my dog twice a day. So why don't I do these prayers with Becky? Becky's my baby, my dog's name. She's a great Pyrenees yellow lab mix, and I adore her. And so I do the prayers, and the first thing I sing is the Shema. And no matter where she is outside, the minute she hears me uh, singing the Shema, she comes barreling in at 100 miles an hour and nearly knocks me down to go right to her bowl. And she knows she has to sit down right at that bowl and start drooling. And I, and I go pretty quick because <laughs> I don't want to torture her. So I get through the Shema, and then I sing the Misha Beirach. Uh, and I do a version of it written by my dearest friend, Debbie Friedman, who has uh, left us and gone to other places that uh, I hope we get to visit somewhere down the road. But um, I loved her dearly, and she was uh, probably the most uh, prolific uh, liturgical Jewish uh, composer of my generation um, for uh, Reform Judaism. I, I don't know from Reform Orthodox or Conservative, it's all... Prayer is prayer, and faith and belief and love and caring is all the same as far as I'm concerned. I don't care what label you put on it. So it's the Misha Bayrock then that Debbie wrote, and there's two verses, so Becky has to sit through both verses. Then I say the bracha over uh, breaking bread. And uh, and as soon as I finish, I say, you know, I do the bracha. And she waits for, oh. Maine. And as soon as I finish on Maine, she looks at me and I go, okay. And then she goes and eats it. <laughs> but she won't touch it until the Maine is over and, and she gets the okay. That's a fantastic story. And I'm glad Beth shared it with me. She included notes about Debbie Friedman and, and about the Misha Birak, which she has painted on scarves before. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, she is, uh, the, like I say, she told me about your show. I didn't even know you were coming. I, I just hadn't checked the Fox. And she's so excited to come and see the show and possibly to meet you. If that's okay with you, I can say a word to someone at the Fox and maybe Beth will get to meet you. She'll probably give you a, a prayer. Absolutely. You call the publicist and ask them to put her on the uh, backstage list. And, you know, those that prayer that Debbie wrote, the Misha Bayrock, that is the healing prayer for all kinds of healing that's necessary. And I've never known the world, certainly not in my lifetime, uh, that, that a moment when more healing was needed. And so it's a great comfort to, I know, Becky, <laughs> to me, that we get the privilege of doing this prayer for our planet and for all humanity everywhere in hopes that kindness will grow and love and healing will stop the insanity and the madness and the violence and start the loving, the compassion, the forgiveness, and the understanding that we all need to not waste this precious time on this planet. I can't think of better words to end our interview on, Mandy, than what you just said. I thank you so much. Well, thank you, and thanks for doing this for us. And, and please ask your audience, if they got nothing to do, come on down to the theater. We'll, we'll do everything we can to give you a good time and if it isn't your thing, just come take a nap. And if you snort too loud, <laughs> I'll just come and give you a shove to, you know, stop the snoring. <laughs> well, that's that's very magnanimous of you, sir. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 
Mandy Patinkin brings Being Alive, accompanied by Adam Ben David at the piano, to the Fox Tucson Theater on February 18th. The creativity and storytelling of some local filmmakers will be on display this Saturday evening, and here's Chris DeShiel to tell us more. On Saturday, February 17th, there's a special cinematic event happening at the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center on River Road. Four short films by local Asian Americans will be screened, with doors opening at 6 p.m. The center has teamed with the University of Arizona School of Theater, Film, and Television and the Southwest Folklife Alliance. They're calling it Night of the Dragon. I was offered a screening, and I can report that there's a lot of talent on display. First up is Eyes on Me, directed by Andy Zhao. It's a horror film infused with sharply satiric themes about Asian Americans dealing with racism on a daily basis. A young Asian American woman, a nurse, is traveling via Uber to substitute for a friend who provides home care for a blind patient. The white Uber driver starts hitting on her, Assume she's Chinese, and when she tells him that she's Vietnamese, he mispronounces her last name. Then he tells her that he once dated someone from Japan. Um, that's nice, she says. The film is just warming up for Jenny Nguyen's encounter with a patient, whose eyes are bandaged and who is behaving in a weird manner. When he hears her name, he assumes she's Korean. I won't reveal any more. Suffice it to say that the blending of conventional horror techniques with the emphasis on crude anti-Asian racism has an unsettling result. And I think that's exactly what Chow intends. Are you wearing shoes right now? Yes. Could you please take them off? Oh, well, actually, as a nurse... Please! Take them off. I'm so sorry. I, I should have asked first. In my house, we actually do the same, you know, Asian households. Oh, Ong Yong Hase. What was that? Do you not understand Korean? Next, we have a nonfiction film called Chin Zi and Chin, directed by Sia Shen Wei. Chin Zi is a young woman devoted to playing the Chin, a seven string plucked Chinese musical instrument. She draws on her father, a craftsman who makes and plays the chin, for inspiration and instruction. We get to see the process of creating this beautiful object and the young musician's relationship to it. Very interesting is the expression of a bond between her and the chin, which has a kind of spirit of its own that harmonizes with the person playing it. This is a good, tightly composed short film. The third film on the program is called Good Night Mom, directed by Sarah Liu. A woman wearing a white mask, reminiscent of Chinese opera, rips her red gown during a dance. Next, we see a younger woman holding and caressing the mask. 
A cryptic dialogue ensues between the young woman and her mother, the masked figure. Using just elusive imagery without trying to explain anything rationally, the film has us experience the mysterious, difficult, and painful presence of the mother figure in the young woman's life. At one point, for instance, the mother calls her my fragile girl and says, don't look at me that way. In this brief, darkly evocative work, Lou demonstrates a remarkable skill presenting symbolism visually with no exposition. It is a brilliant, haunting film. As a finale, we have the program's longest film, Young Lions, a documentary by Nolan Veneklassen. It's about an ancient tradition called the Lion Dance, in which dancers wear beautiful lion costumes that are more like spectacular symbols of lions than realistic ones. Each lion has two dancers, one for the front and head and one for the rear, and the movements required by the dance are difficult and rigorous. The film celebrates the nonprofit group at the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center that teaches the dance to young people who perform at events throughout the year, including Tucson Meet Yourself, the Rodeo, Homecoming at the U of A, the Chinese New Year celebrations, and other events. Vena Clausen interviews the troupe's director and several excellent trainers and staff as we observe kids from seven years old and up learning the dance. There's no fooling around. This takes lots of practice, and the trainers can be tough but it provides a way for these young people to learn more about their Chinese culture and to integrate this knowledge into their lives. Most of them are kids that have been adopted into non-Chinese families, and the adoptive parents want to give their children the chance to experience some grounding in Chinese tradition, to make contact with their roots. This is a good introduction to an art form of which many of us might be unaware. I was awed by the exquisite artistry of the lion dance costumes, and then inspired by the people keeping this art alive by passing it down through generations, a kind of ceremonial practice of power and wisdom. What they learn from lion dancing, that you see them apply it in a different area, and that makes me feel like all these young kids are maturing and applying, and they're like our big family, and we're seeing them grow up. I've been doing lion dance with my brother and my sister for like basically over, over like 15 years, you know what I mean? It's been part of my life for so long. I really take pride and joy when I see the kids, right? And when I see them perform and when they accomplish moves, I always feel something inside of me here, right? Because as an educator, I really enjoy teaching the kids. They're having fun and they're growing, and I really like love to see that with the kids. Watching good short films like these reaffirms my belief that the shorter form has a lot to offer us that feature-length films do not. Whether they're dramas or documentaries, well-done shorts fit a lot of emotion and insight into the smaller running time to create a memorable impact on the audience. The Night of the Dragon event, this Saturday at 6, helps to convey the impressive town and scope of these local Asian-American filmmakers. And now I'm joined by the U of A graduate who made the last of the four films that Chris just told you about. His name is Nolan Veneklassen. 
and he'll begin by explaining the inspiration behind the Young Lions. It started over 20 years ago. Um, my brother and I, Jackson, who is one of the leads in the, in the film, we started when we were like five and six. Our mom is Taiwanese, Chinese, and she got us involved in the lion dance and the Tucson Chinese school. And we were learning Mandarin and going to a Chinese school every Sunday since we were like five. And back, back in that time, it was you know, all hosted at the, the Modern Language Building in, at the University of Arizona. And you know, we just kind of stuck through it. They, they, they created this event community center, uh, the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center in 2003. And we stuck with it for over 20 years uh, through multiple masters or sifus. And um, yeah, it just, it, it captivated us. There was something really interesting about the lion dance. Uh, you know, Mandarin was difficult. We were learning <laughs> Spanish in class and Mandarin on the weekends and trying to figure out how to be a kid. So um, we really gravitated towards the lion dance. And another aspect you have going on in the film that we can't overlook is cute kids. <laughs> You've got these children. Talk about their ages and the level of importance that they seem to be placing on this cultural education. Are they really, do you feel, taking it seriously? Well, that's interesting. I, um, I think seriously at the age of 5 to 10 <laughs> means something different than when you're in your late 20s. But for the kids, it gives them an opportunity, whether they know it or not, to practice all these incredible skills that, bring, that they bring with them as they grow up. And that's one of the big themes of this short film, uh, Young Lions, is growing up, you need some sense of uh, discipline and teamwork and learning how to embrace yourself and learning how to stand up for yourself. These are all qualities that, you know, we learned when we were growing up through the program. And so for me, I see these kids growing and, and transitioning from, you know, five to 10 to 10 to 15 and then 15 to 20. And you're like, wow, now some of these kids are getting married and um, starting their own families. So the lion dance provides an opportunity for kids to almost grow through a program and find their own identity and find their own strengths and weaknesses and work on those. And the education can be stern sometimes. I mean, we see uh, a couple of times your brother Jackson as the instructor kind of have to lay the law down for these kids. So let's hear a short clip. You all laughed. I'm not laughing. There were whole moves that were completely delayed by 10 seconds. Do it again. <laughs> Bow one, bow two, bow three. That's freaking perfect. Why couldn't you do that the first time? Why did we waste 15 minutes when you could have done that the first time? Go get some water. So Jackson, your brother, and a young woman named Paisley, who is embarking on her own sort of new stage in life by getting married, um, are the instructors at the beginning, but at one point, an important call has to be made to bring in a ringer. Yeah, so Jackson and Paisley have been um, the main leaders and teachers of the Lion Dance group. We practice every Sunday. And then when performances come along in January and February, it's performances every Sunday. So when the program was coming out of COVID and being absent for almost 30 months, uh, Jackson and Paisley were definitely the first line of defense to kind of get the 
group together because i mean like you've seen in the clips those kids can be chaotic and there's a lot of them <laughs> so trying to wrangle all of that can be difficult um, especially for just two adults um, leaders so at, at some point susan the director calls kevin lau who is our master sifu and really been with the program for over 20 years as well um, and Kevin provides a different kind of uh, education style than Jackson and Paisley. I feel like Jackson and Paisley are, are both great coaches and at finding ways to motivate the kids. But Kevin has a legacy of wisdom that you just can't compare it. And so when he comes in, he really brings the kids' attention together and finds a purpose for how to direct all their energy. And I think... Kevin does a great job at always bringing the troop together in that way. Do you think this is a lion or do you think this is something different? I know what it is. I know what it is. Dog. That's not a lion. <laughs> not a lion? What, what do you think it is? You think it's a dog. Why do we perform lion dancing? Why? Go ahead. To keep the culture alive. Keep the culture alive. That's really good. Yeah? To celebrate Chinese New Year. Celebrate, that's a big one, celebrate Chinese New Year's. So if the Chinese lion, right, we celebrate it to bring good luck, right, to everyone, also to scare away evil spirits, right, and we perform this during Chinese New Year's. The lion dance is popular during the Lunar New Year to bring in good luck and to toss out the bad spirits of the year before. But what a lot of people don't know is that we also perform the lion dance for weddings and for grand openings of stores and for other occasions, usually positive um, celebrations. And so that year, uh, that semester, we, we did the rodeo. We did um, a, a few nail salon openings. We do Asian grocery stores. We've done performances all over the place. And, you know, one of the big ones, our first first performance was the Tucson Meet Yourself, which we've done for many, many years. And I think, you know, that's what makes Tucson and this program here uh, so special is that you can see Chinese lion and dragon dance at the rodeo parade in Tucson, Arizona. What a what a eclectic and beautiful combination of culture. Thanks to filmmaker Nolan Veneclausen. His film will be featured in the short film showcase called Night of the Dragon on Saturday, February 17th. Doors open at 6 p.m. This is just one aspect of the many New Year's festivities happening at the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center, located at 1288 West River Road. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance from Alicia Vasquez. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.